Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. And we wanted to do a second episode this week uh, to focus on you know the ongoing events in Ukraine. I think mostly, Ben, because um, uh, we're both just so horrified, especially last night watching the Russian assaults on Ukrainian civilians escalate. And uh, this show is really the only way that we have left to deal with the fear, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that anxiety. Yeah. So we're going to work through it with you guys in real time. I hope uh, I hope listeners don't mind. Yeah, sometimes you just got to talk about it, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I've been learning that a lot lately. Uh, this is this is part of my therapy. So we're going to talk through a few of the big updates since we recorded on Tuesday, and then later in the show, you're going to hear Ben's interview with Christopher Miller from BuzzFeed News, who's been reporting on the ground in Ukraine for a long time, and is just an exceptionally good reporter. Ben, you want to preview that at all? Yeah, and and you guys have heard him in the past. No, uh, he's just incredibly thoughtful uh, and dogged reporter. Um, you know he walks us through what the situation is like in and around Kyiv where he's been, uh, what the Ukrainian people are, are going through and what the Russian uh, military escalation has felt like. Um, and, and I think it, it gives you a sense of, you know, not just the violence, but things like food shortages and uh, energy access and lack of communication. It, he really kind of takes you into that experience. And we talk about some of his uh, recent reporting on on some other issues, including you know, one that's caught my attention, which is he he wrote a piece about former American military guys, special forces guys, along with some Europeans going into uh, Ukraine to fight, um, which could become a significant variable here if there's potentially thousands or tens of thousands of highly trained Americans um, fighting uh, Russians inside of Ukraine. Um, And, uh, you know, interestingly, he noted during our conversation um, that some governments, including the UK, had actually kind of encouraged this, that the US hadn't um, spoken about it or issued a statement about it. Just literally hours after our conversation about this, um, I, I, I do want to say the 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 government put out a statement discouraging Americans from going to Ukraine to fight. So clearly, this is going this is going to get more and more attention. Yeah, I um, I got to say that is incredibly brave, but boy, is it scary. Um, there's a lot of ways this could go bad. So, um, you know, the the utter recklessness and, and nihilism of this Russian invasion was really driven home last night by this terrifying attack uh, on the Saporizhia nuclear plant. This was a military assault on a nuclear power plant in a country where the Chernobyl meltdown happened in 1986. Like, you couldn't think of a worse idea. Several Ukrainian soldiers were killed. One of the buildings at the plant caught fire. We were all supposed to take solace at the fact that it was a training facility and not near a reactor. But this whole incident was dangerous enough that Biden jumped on the phone with President Zelensky to discuss what was going on. Um, There was reportedly damage to the, quote, structure of the reactor compartment at one of the reactors. We've been assured that there's no risk or sign of radiation leaks so far. I mean, the good news is radiation leaks you can kind of measure in real time, but you never know if there's risk of meltdown. And I think we should probably give it a few days, if not a few months, to be relieved because the longer term problem is the Russians now control a 6,000 megawatt plant. And we shouldn't believe anything they say about safety ever. And the nuclear staff um, are reportedly being forced to work at gunpoint. So, Ben, you know, these guys are clearly trying to control key infrastructure so they can lay siege to the civilian population. And, you know, this facility needs constant power and water that remains um, cool and under control. So, Ben, you know, you and I were texting last night, like I was telling Hannah, I think the scariest meetings I've ever been to in my life were during the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan in 2011. Like I remember sitting in a conversation where we were monitoring the the scene with some like yep. a drone, like a global hawk, yep. and the military guys 
talking us through what we were watching, we're like, we're a little worried it could fall out of the sky because of the radiation. I mean, that's how serious this was. And it's brought me yeah. back to that moment. Yeah. I mean, you know, we should say that unlike some people on, on Twitter, neither you or I are, are nuclear uh, physicists or experts. Far from it. <laughs> but um, but I do have that experience. And, and part of what that experience, you know, reminded me of yesterday is that you know, it doesn't take necessarily an explosion in the reactor as what happened in Chernobyl um, to, to cause a real catastrophe, that if you have damage caused by fire and water and an incapacity to kind of maintain the plant, these leaks can be incredibly dangerous. And, and you know, we were sitting in meetings where the evacuation of Tokyo was discussed, you know, um, yeah. And those were some of the wildest meetings, um, you know, I, I remember being in, in government because you just the scale of danger um, if, if this thing had gone worse and it already you know, took a lot of lives, obviously, and caused a lot of devastation. Um, it just continued to go up exponentially. And, and here we're talking about the single largest nuclear power plant in Europe. You know, th this is a yeah, big, yeah. big effing deal. Um, one of the things, you know, Christopher Mill and I talk about is the energy picture generally and the sense if the Russian objective appears to be to really terrorize Ukrainians into giving up, essentially. And, and that, that was Miller's view of, of his experience of life in Kiev and how it's going. You know, controlling one quarter of the country's energy from this you know, power plant um, is, is certainly a way to, to be able to, to terrorize people. If they can start yeah. shutting off energy, it's cold there right now. Um, people don't have a lot of food to begin with. The weaponization of energy infrastructure could only just further ratchet this up too. So that this is this is troubling in, in multiple regards. You know, both the safety, obviously, of the nuclear reactor, but also just what leverage this gives uh, the Russians over kind of just the ability for people to survive in in Ukraine, yeah. parts of Ukraine. Yeah, and again, like there were reports last night that the Russians wouldn't let firefighters get to this facility or to put it out or, you know, like you mentioned, if water gets cut off to the cooling mechanism, that can lead to a meltdown. If power gets cut off to these mechanisms, that can lead to a meltdown. There's, there's just so many ways this could go badly on purpose or with a mistake. And then, you know, you and I were talking last night, it's like, if Putin wanted to pull NATO into the fight, yeah. it could be something like this, like an exis, not that I think he's doing it on purpose, but this is an existential threat to Europe if they think there could be a nuclear meltdown and suddenly like yeah. the idea of boots on the ground or no fly zone like that seems a lot less crazy than letting a nuclear power plant burn to the ground yeah yeah no that's i mean th there's a there's a nihilism um to what Putin's doing and, and a, a kind of escalation that is obviously deeply disturbing and and one of the things that i noticed and i mentioned this to you in the in the zelensky statement right zelensky who's repeatedly appealed to nato for no fly zone um he particularly calls out Europe, you know, now's the time for Europe to act. And I thought that was interesting because Europe is, you know, in the in the territory that could be affected, for instance, by uh, a massive nuclear problem. Um, Europe has had public opinion, I think, even more mobilized in the U.S. And I don't want to overread into just this one statement, but um, you could see what he's getting at is this is collective defense, right? And, yeah. and the argument he was making in the past is the collective defense is because Putin's going to come for you next. This is like, no, like you guys could be in severe fucking danger 
from this lunatic yeah. if he's doing things like causing leaks at, at, at large nuclear plants. And I, Tommy, like one of the things that was so, again, troubling about experiencing just the last 24 hours is both the Russian escalation, but I, I, I tended to not think about the possibility, you know, I, I, I did not think it was likely, you know, that, that NATO is going to end up in a direct conflict with Russia here. You're starting to feel like I'm not so sure about that anymore, you know, just because I don't know what Putin's going to do. And I just don't know how yeah. far he can push uh, this without inviting something in response. So I, I still don't think that's the right thing to seek out. I don't think that means, you know, let's do the fly zone. But I think it does mean that we've seen in just like like over a week um, how much this thing can escalate. And, and um, uh, I, I don't think we can rule it out, you know. Yeah, I'm with you. So a couple of buckets of things we're going to dig into uh, later in the show. We're going to talk about the challenges the Russian army has had in the south and what that means for Kherson and the city of Odessa. And we're going to hear from a young mother of two. Uh, we have some audio clips from a, a great interview our producer Haley did earlier today. Uh, we'll talk in depth about some energy sanctions and calls on Biden to do more to pressure Putin on energy. We'll talk about intelligence sharing uh, and we'll talk about what this could do to global food supplies. Before we get to those, just some quick updates. So since we talked on Tuesday, Biden announced expanded sanctions on oligarchs. Vice President Kamala Harris is reportedly traveling to Poland for talks about this ongoing crisis. Uh, NATO rejected Ukraine's call for a no-fly zone and says there will be no NATO troops on Ukrainian soil. So that is pretty definitive. But at the same time, President Macron of France called Putin, and then they briefed the media afterwards saying he came away feeling like the worst is yet to come. Uh, and frankly, that seems borne out. So there was this nuclear attack last night. We got fucking Lindsey Graham, <laughs> Senator Lindsey Graham, firing off tweets calling on Putin to be assassinated. Yeah, James That's Bond over here, yeah. Yeah. And then media outlets in Russia may have to get shut down because of new laws that were passed in Russia's parliament that criminalize dissent. I mean, spreading false information about armed forces can get you 15 years in prison. And that law takes an effect Saturday. And Russia is now blocking Facebook in the country. I'm tempted to make a joke and say lucky them. But in this case, it's probably a pretty important source of news for people. Yeah. So a lot, to, like like you said, man, like so much is moving. I don't know if there was a piece of that you wanted to focus on, but you know, I know the media part in Russia is particularly unnerving. Yeah, I, I mean, we talked about Ukraine on the ground and how bad that is. The, these steps by Putin to, you know, Russia's obviously been essentially, you know, it's been an autocratic system, essentially a dictatorship, but but this is like police state level. He's taking a giant European country um, and and just turning it into a complete and utter dictatorial police state. I mean, he's trying to hermetically seal out information for ordinary Russians. He's trying to completely criminalize any form of dissent whatsoever. Um, and I think, you know, he'll have some success, but Russia's not China. They haven't spent like, you know, a couple of decades building their own parallel internet and media system. Like there's still there's still right. going to be information that gets into Russian. So I think the gap between what Putin may be trying to tell his people and what they're actually hearing, if they can get outside information or what they're experiencing with casualties coming home or in the economy could become a problem for him, actually. Yeah. There's an interesting story in the BBC where there was a young woman in Ukraine who was being shelled, who was trying to tell her older mother back in Russia what was happening and the mother wouldn't believe her and was sort of repeating the propaganda. And you can imagine a world where like a young sort of more urban yeah. online class of Russian citizens knows what's going on and is horrified. Yeah. And Putin's base, older, 
you know, kind of listening to state run radio, watching state run TV is buying the party line because like that's what they grew up with. Yeah. I I mean, I the Russians I know, you know, admittedly tend to be the urban um, types in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And and those I've been in contact with are like, they're just utterly fucking horrified. Like they, you know, I mean, and I think it's indicative probably if, if you're like a, you know, you don't even have to be some super liberal. If you're a person that um, is able to get information and understand how false the stories are that have been forced down your throat and then understand what is happening in Ukraine in your name, um, it, there's almost no way to sell that whatsoever uh, unless you're just a complete far-right nationalist lunatic. Uh, I have to think that that, that demographic in, in Russia is just completely horrified by if they access information the competition then becomes out in other demographics in other areas whether that that can shift too you know yeah and like you know we're seeing i think yesterday thursday the russian government said that 498 russian troops have been killed 1597 were wounded that is almost certainly a massive undercount there's estimates of 5000 killed 6000 killed 7000 troops russian troops dead potentially i don't know what the answer is and i don't say any of this to gloat but like we're starting to talk about more casualties than the U.S. had in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan combined, and that's going to mean a lot of upset moms, dads, brothers, sisters back home that are going to like get the reality of this war the hard way. And I guess the question is still like, who do they blame? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, you can't, and you can't, um, you can't hide that. I mean, and the scale of this death, because we saw the Russians try to hide casualties in eastern Ukraine because they claimed they weren't even there, but those were you know, much, much lower. If you, you're talking potentially tens of thousands of Russian casualties here, because, you know, if you're, you're talking about killed, but also wounded, which is something yeah. that people are going to find out about. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that can make audiences that might otherwise defer to Putin and his nationalism and his narrative, um, you know, that that can start to crack your support. And, and you know, among moms, families, communities that have a large you know, military presence. Um, right. So this is where it gets even more dangerous for Putin. Yeah, real dicey. Um, so we've talked about the challenges the Russian army has had in the north, especially this 40 some odd mile caravan of military vehicles that has been stuck for several days. But the reality is that the, Russia has made considerable progress taking territory in cities in the south. They captured the city of Kherson, uh, and many fear there will soon be an attack on the port city of Odessa. Again, we're taping Friday at like 1 p.m. Uh, California time. Uh, our producer Haley talked to a woman uh, named Olina Dunira, a 29-year-old mother of a three-month-old and a five-year-old who were born and raised in Odessa. Uh, here's a clip. I think the waiting is the worst because uh, it's been for three days. We uh, heard of these ships uh, around the city. Um, my feeling is for them to finally uh, take a step forward so we could just uh, deal with this problem. I think people in Odessa are absolutely ready to, to respond. Uh, the military forces and also the volunteers, uh, the preparation they did throughout these last several days are great. So uh, I think that Odessa people also feel a little bit maybe guilty uh, because most of the cities in Ukraine under attack, they're suffering at the moment. And in Odessa, it is um, quite safe and quiet. Uh, 
So I think that Odessa people want to join the uh, this glorious fighting of uh, Ukrainians and to and to show the aggressor where he should be, and that and that he is not welcome here. So Ben, I mean, I think that clip speaks to yeah. where Putin has had success, but also what they he and his military goons fundamentally underestimated, which is th- that's not a Ukrainian soldier we're talking to. Yeah. That's a 29 year old mother of two yeah. who's like, we're going to show the aggressor what's up. That's clearly the mood, right? I mean, and Miller talked about this. And this this is a guy who reported on the war in the Donbass, and he seemed even surprised at just the the depth and, and ferocity of the Ukrainian resistance here uh, psychologically. And the problem, right, as we've discussed for Putin is, okay, you know, maybe you can um, lay siege to these cities. Maybe you can even kind of technically conquer these cities, right? Roll in a bunch of uh, tanks and material and just maybe level a, a big chunks of these cities. How is he going to hold them? You know, I mean, these people know. Are, are not going to just say, okay, you know, there was a report that the Russians were going to send back Viktor Yanukovych, the corrupt, you know, uh, Ukrainian pro-Russian politician, that they had two revolutions to get rid of. Um, yeah, you know, 2005 that. and 2014, before all this. And, and you, you, does anybody think that the, the Russians can just hand the keys over to some corrupt uh, lackeys of theirs and, and not have people... Uh, in Odessa and Kiev and everywhere else, you know, in kind of a permanent state of insurgency. So, yeah, it's it's interesting how this current moment highlights both the ultimate Russian superiority. You know, they they can terrorize a city like that. They can have a mix of military resources that Ukraine doesn't have, from the land to the sea to the ground, but they can't erase these people's uh, sense of defiance and. And, and you know we've learned as a as a country in the United States in Iraq and Afghanistan that um, conventional military superiority in the long run uh, cannot eliminate the, the 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 opposition's will to fight you know and yeah. and I yeah. think in in Ukraine the depth of and I'm not saying this to to in any way sugarcoat the U.S. military interventions the depth and breadth of the resistance that we're seeing in Ukraine. Is much much broader than even in Iraq, where you know there were um, there are a variety of views about um, whether or not the U.S. should should be there. Um, I, you know, generally, obviously, uh, anti-occupation, but this is something even more pronounced. So, um, yeah, it's this dilemma for Putin. You know, uh, what, what whatever you're kind of quote unquote winning by destroying these cities in the short term, what what are you getting in the medium and long term? Yeah. And look, we're, we're listening to interviews with young people, but the history here is, is deep. I mean, you could go back to, you know, the early 30s when Stalin caused a famine because of collectivization, the, the policy of collectivization that killed millions of people. Um, and uh, you could go back to the Nazi occupation of Ukraine in, in the 40s. I mean, there is a history of these brave people standing up and fighting uh, and pushing occupiers out to the bitter, bitter end. Um, let's hear one more clip uh, from Olina Dunira uh, before we move on to the next topic. I have no idea what to do, uh, what to do with two little kids abroad. Um, I know that all people around the world are very kind to Ukrainians now, and they uh, take refugees as um, um, as close relatives and help whatever is possible. But uh, still. I can't imagine leave abroad. 
Uh, I can't imagine that. Um, I still hope for the best, but we prepare for the worst. Uh, I think we have some food supplies, um, some basic things um, to, to survive maybe for a month or something. It is terrible because my five-year-old child already knows what, what is shelter, what is, what is bombing, uh, how tanks work. Um, he also asked me why these bad people try to assault us. Uh, and this is a very existential, a very existential question. Not all the adult ones know the answer to it. So uh, um, I hope that uh, Ukrainian children, who who now in the in in the shelters, that they will manage to overcome this traumatic uh, this traumatic uh, experience somewhere in in future. But I think it is a very very long and difficult way to to recover from such an experience just devastating yeah yeah (sighs) um okay so we'll keep talking about the the biden response here so you know in addition to calls to enact a no-fly zone from president Zelensky and from a few republicans uh although really not that many in the u.s there is increasing pressure on president biden to stop importing russian oil and to work with europe to fully sanction russia's oil and gas sector you know, as of this morning, I've seen Nancy Pelosi, Joe Manchin, Senator Lisa Murkowski, Republican. A lot of lawmakers have either proposed or voiced support for cutting off Russian oil imports to the U.S. The White House has opposed it so far. I think Jen Psaki, to her credit, was quite honest that the White House opposes the idea because they don't want gas prices to go up for consumers. And if you look at those imports, like Russian oil was 1.4% of total crude imports in December, the last most recent numbers we have, but they make up a bigger percentage of what's called unfinished oil products. Um, the TLDR answer here is that like oil is not a totally fungible commodity. There's different grades and types and refinement facilities, so it gets complicated, but um, odds are it would create some price increases, some pain at the pump for consumers in the U.S., and a lot of pain for natural gas buyers in Europe who are far more dependent on Russian energy. Ben, right before we started recording, there was some polling that showed 80% of Americans want the U.S. to stop buying Russian oil. And 74% say the U.S. and its allies should impose a no-fly zone. My guess is that 100% of those respondents don't really know what the impact of those steps would be. But it does speak to the gigantic political trap that is now set for President Biden. What do you make of this? I I think Ron Klain had a really good and straight answer on on Pod Save America um, in that, you know, he mentioned two things, uh, blowback on our economy, but also unity, right? Maintaining unity. And I would imagine that thus far, um, not only is the U.S. ambivalent about this, but there's probably big splits in Europe between countries that really want to do this and some countries that you know just really worry about a massive hit to their economy when you talk about the scale of gas imports. Um, and, and so then the question becomes, is the harm the sanction is doing to the target, Russia, um, that much bigger than the harm it might end up doing to uh, Europe and, and the U.S. and the global economy? Um, all that said... <laughs> I don't see how we don't end up there. You know, um, I just, the images, we're, 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 we're over a week into this um, and precisely actually because they don't want to do no fly zone, which I totally understand for the reasons we've discussed. 
there's going to be this impulse to to be doing more and to be punishing Russia more. And and look, it makes a difference because part of it is also the cost of sustaining a military operation for Russia. Oil and gas is obviously their biggest source of revenue. Uh, and so you're trying to kind of affect that as well, although they will be able to sell oil, presumably, to some other places and continue to get revenue. But I think there's just going to be such public outcry um, to to – uh, to do as, everything we can. And and just think, Tommy, if we get to a situation like a week or two from now where the violence has gotten even worse in places like Kiev and Odessa, you've got tens of thousands of people have been killed and Europe is still buying these huge amounts of natural gas from Russia every day and sending them a check. You know, I, I just don't think yeah. that's sustainable. Um, uh, so I, I think it, it's going to happen uh, or I'd be surprised if it didn't happen. Um I guess politicians might just really not want to deal with the fallout. And if it does, I mean, yeah, it, no question. Uh, gas prices go up uh, for people at the pump here in the U.S., but, you know, much more significant challenges in Europe. And and you're right. I don't, I don't know that people will, you know, necessarily be able to draw the connections between why all these things, you know, why is the, the gas price up for me? The American consumer is that, you know, is that, Joe Biden's fault or is it, you know, so, um, but I, I think it's coming. Yeah. I mean, I think odds are maybe these issues get split up and I saw some reporting yesterday that, um, uh, Russian oil is already selling at a discount, presumably because yeah. no one wants to buy it because of the stigma around it. So you could see that getting split off from, uh, Russian natural gas. Yeah. And in, yeah. in that, in that instance, like I think Nord Stream one, I mean, there's two of those pipelines. One of them's done and is working for a while. It's, it's flowing. I think at 100% capacity. I mean, I think the argument against this would be if you step back and said the core U.S. interest in this conflict is to avoid a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia. Yeah. And at some point, Putin might feel that this economic warfare is tantamount to engaging them in battle like a no-fly zone would. I, I, but like, again, I don't know what his calculus is. Yeah, that's that's like, a. I mean, thus far, if you look at the way that the administration has both used sanctions and, frankly, the Europeans too, obviously, but also provided as many weapons as possible uh, to the Ukrainians. Um, we're basically doing everything other than direct military conflict. You know, the well, the, the gray space of of what is war here is is basically everything on the other line of NATO troops engaged in acts of violence against Russian forces, you know? Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this. So Congressman Adam Smith said on some TV show that the U.S. is not sharing the most sensitive intelligence they have on the Russian military because they don't want to be seen as a direct participant in the war. So the line is basically being drawn at like real-time targeting information that could be used to enable a Ukrainian military strike. And it it does, I think, again, ask this question of like, there's this bright line at the no-fly zone because yeah. that's direct, I blow you up. Yeah. But um, we're supplying all these arms. We're supplying different kinds of intelligence. It seems like like people are sitting in the Situation Room correctly, yeah. trying to understand where a red line might be for Putin. But the 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 only answer that matters is whatever his opinion is. Yeah, and like I don't I don't know what to make of this distinction or how to even begin to draw that line. Like, do you do you have thoughts on that? I, I've been thinking a lot about this because. You know, on this intelligence question, to me, it's like, well, if we're already giving the Ukrainians weapons, right, javelin, anti-tank weapons to destroy Russian tanks and kill Russian soldiers in those tanks, 
Um, and, you know, reports of th- you know, things like Stinger missiles, surfaced air missiles uh, to try to shoot down Russian helicopters. What's really the difference, you know, um, between yeah. giving the weapon to fire and giving them the intelligence that indicates where the people are that you're firing at? I mean, obviously, it's a turn of the, the, the knob, I guess, in the direction of, of participation. But, we're, you know, it, it does feel like we're already kind of there. And it, it, again, it feels like we're we're in this space where anything uh, up to the line of NATO either setting foot in Ukraine or you know taking direct shots with NATO um, assets at at Russian forces, most of that stuff feels like it's already being done. I guess there's other things too, though. Like, and this is where it gets even grayer, which is that, like we're probably not. I assume using cyber resources to jam Russian communications, right? Command right. and control. Um, do people start calling for that? And you're, you're right. I, I don't want us to get into World War Three. Like, the, by the way, and d- d- I think people should be clear here. Like, that would be bad for the Ukrainian people too. Like, totally. Uh, you know, uh, uh, so this is complicated here because if, you know, there's tactile nuclear weapons that get used at some point, like, that's going to be even worse for the people of Ukraine. So, it's in everybody's interest to not have World War Three. I think some people like to think that somehow you're going to stop Putin on his tracks with a, a, a you know no fly zone or something, but that's the danger. But I also, if I was in the sit room or anywhere, you'd be like, what can we do to help these people? And how can we, on what grounds can we say, well, we know where the Russian military is positioning itself, but we're not going to tell you, you know? Um, and that's the kind of dilemma of this whole thing. And I, I just, I think that, the scale of what Russia is doing um, and the the stakes of it um, are going to drive the U.S. and Europe, you know, further and further towards that that line. You know, um, and yeah. I don't see what else, how else it's going to play out. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. And, and frankly, the lack of sort of cyber warfare that has at least been visible to us is kind of surprising. Yeah. I mean, how many like super alarmist New York Times stories have you read over the last decade about the Russia implanting? some sort of code and critical infrastructure, like potentially turn off the power grid, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So far, I mean, none of that has been apparent, at least. Yeah. And I, I think one big uncertainty is whether that's coming, you know, both, you know, um, yeah. internal to Ukraine as part of Russia's tactical plan, but maybe that was the thing Putin was holding in reserve to respond to our sanctions, you know? Um, and then the way this thing goes is if there are those kinds of more disruptive Russian cyber attacks, and maybe they're not, maybe there's a a boy who cried wolf thing here um, to those Russian capabilities, but you know we do know they they have some because uh, they've caused some damage in the past. Maybe that's when the pressure's on the U.S. to say, well, why don't we use our offensive cyber capabilities to disrupt the Russian military? And you can see there, there are different spaces where things could could escalate here. Um, yeah, even though this one is the one that the dog that hasn't barked yet. So one thing that, you know, that folks might not be front of line, it's not like the first uh, page of the New York Times website is just what this might do to food prices. So the price of wheat has already gone up. Russia and Ukraine account for 29% of global wheat exports. uh, And the price of wheat currently is at a 14 year high. 
Many countries that are wealthy have stockpiles of wheat, like the U.S., but there's not nearly enough to, to feed the world for any significant amount of time, especially if this drags on and Ukrainian farmers can't plant crops this spring. Per usual, those who will get hurt the most will be grain importers in places like the Middle East and North Africa that have climates that aren't conducive to growing grain, but are still, you know, sort of heavily dependent on bread as, uh, you know, as for food. It's just a great example of how like, okay, this war may seem kind of geographically constrained at the moment, but in reality, it's it's already global. And, you know, poor people in poor communities are going to be the ones who will likely starve. That could lead to more conflicts. Climate change is exacerbating all of this. It's just every part of this thing is terrible. Yeah. I I mean, it's a pain in the ass when you go to the, the, you know, grocery store in, in LA and the food prices are up a bit. That's not what this is about. The The most vulnerable people to things like wheat disruptions are the people on like the knife's edge of famine, you know, yeah. who can just get completely priced out of the capacity uh, to uh, to get food. And, and we're basically also talking about places where there's risk of, of not just famine, but where there may be conflict, right? Um, in parts of North Africa, the Middle East, uh, the Horn of Africa, um, so you you could really see the this ripple effect, and you know this is a part of that that UN vote where Russia got so overwhelmingly you know isolated. I bet that this is part of the calculation. Like some of it for these countries is is genuine revulsion at seeing you know a big country invade a neighboring small one that's a democracy, uh, but some of these countries. You're just looking at this, I mean, including, by the way, China, like, the world doesn't need this right now. You know, we're coming at COVID, like there's a lot of shit going on, um, and this is yep. going to make everything worse, basically. Yeah. Oh, speaking of China, there were some reports, I don't think we mentioned these Tuesday, that the Chinese had actually gotten notice from the Russians that this invasion was going to occur and asked them to wait until after the Olympics. So yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for Gee. yeah yeah uh, really prioritizing your your fucking dumbass Olympics. You know, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the we talked about this like the meeting b- between Putin and Xi was like, of course he was going to tell him you know in advance and give him a heads up, and the idea that the Chinese respond and it was also pretty glaringly obvious. I mean, this is one yes. of these things where like there are these debates on Twitter and stuff like. There's no way that Putin's decision making will be affected by the Olympics. It was pretty glaringly obvious that the Russian ramp up directly into this invasion, like literally began like right after the Olympics, you know, um, and and the fact that that was kind of a win- it's kind of a window into Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership. The fact that that was their consideration, you know, like well, yeah. invade and devastate this country and and make a mockery of the entire international system, J- just do it after like the 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 closing ceremonies you know i mean right. nobody cares that much about your olympics except you it's another yeah that that's um a great example of a um an area where the the twitter debate the political debate around this nightmare was really mocking uh of what came to pass yeah, another yeah. another uh another debate that's kind of worn out its welcome is uh the is nato expansion responsible for this yeah, catastrophe yeah, yeah, debate yeah. it's like look again you and i did a whole episode where we talked about yeah. how NATO expansion might have been a bad idea. It was too aggressive. Specifically, Georgia and Ukraine were part of this last batch of countries nominated in, in 2008 by the Bush administration. But that doesn't justify what this <laughs> psychopath is doing. Yeah. And if he's this shrewd actor on the world stage, it is 
it, it is his worst nightmare. Yeah. Right? Finland might join NATO. The Germans are doubling yeah. their military spending. It is going to drive people into NATO. And do you, are you going to tell me that Ukraine was irrational to want to join NATO with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there have been too much of people kind of trying to um, win other debates off of what's happening here, you know? Um, yes. Uh, which is... I think that like we have to continue to try to, and we try to do this on 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 the show, obviously. Like, okay, there, there's like a central focus on like the people of Ukraine and what they're experiencing, which is more important than how how you feel about that. You know, like that that that's the most important thing. And and then there are enormous economic and geostrategic and military questions that are going to flow out and have huge consequences for the rest of us. Um, but at core. This is happening because there is a ethno-nationalist authoritarian sociopath running a country with nuclear weapons um, that has decided to essentially risk his entire standing in Russia on this bet that he can do this in Ukraine. And his basic premise is that Ukraine doesn't even exist as a nation. And we're seeing some of the most inspiring nationalism out of the Ukrainian people in response. Like that's what's going on. Not your theory about what the thing is that, you know, you know, the dunk you want to uh, get done on Twitter. Yeah. And I do think sort of like the context of like, all right, who is this guy, Vladimir Putin? And like, what's his worldview? I mean, I was reading a, a, a bio biography of him and I didn't realize that his father fought in the Russian army and was wounded at the siege of Leningrad, which was like a what, yeah. two and a half year Awful. Nazi yeah. siege of either the biggest or the second biggest um, city in in Russia at the time that led to the death of millions of people, yeah, like yeah. a half Horrific. a million soldiers on each side and then like over a million civilians. So like if you want to, you know, if you're worried about, okay, what tactics will he employ? Like what, what's his threshold when he thinks about, okay, creating pain for a population or a city? Like if it's that, that is daunting. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it... It can be forgotten because there's a sense of Putin um, starting in 2000 as a kind of more, you know, an ominous figure, but at least a like a much more reasonable. Saying the right thing. things yeah, at yeah. times, yeah. And, you know, he Bush looked into his soul and, you know, Obama had a reset. And But it, bear in mind that the thing that propelled him to greater prominence in Russia in the late 90s as prime minister was this Chechen operation, right? Yep. Where, first of all, like, it has long been uh, theorized with proof, not just conspiracy theories, that, that the FSB may have actually created a pretext for escalation in Chechnya by literally doing false flag attacks on Moscow apartment buildings, right? So yeah. potentially harming Russians to create a pretext to escalate in Chechnya. There's a lot of journalism around that. And then when- They into, caught- Yeah. They caught guys- planting bombs and they said oh it's an exercise exactly yeah so th that's what <laughs> okay. i mean by not just conspiracy theory. yeah thank you for that detail and and then goes down to, to chechnya and you know look at the reporters and books that have been written about this just levels the place entirely um yeah. and again because you know that was under the it was in the this kind of bled into obviously the war on terror years and so it was kind of in categorized i think in our uh collective minds as just the Russian slightly more brutal version of the war on terror down there. Um, uh, which again, I think, you know, that there's another U S policy that, um, uh, you know, people talk about NATO expansion. They don't talk about like 
whether or not the war on, they should talk more about whether the war on terror was a pretty useful framework for, for Putin with some of the stuff he was doing. But you're right. There's been a, everything about his biography um, suggests someone who actually believes the things he's saying about history that deeply feels grievance and that has very little ceiling uh, when it comes to to violence, you know, whether it's mass violence and in, in, in places like Grozny or like literally like poisoning his opponents, right? If you are that yeah. kind of sadistic, um, I, I don't know that, you, that there's anything that's going to shock you out of uh, out of the kinds of images we're seeing in Ukraine. Yeah, so much for uh, you know global economic trade uh, yeah. preventing wars yeah. and the uh, was it the Tom Friedman uh, no two countries with McDonald's franchises have ever gone to war yeah well yeah. theory of the case that, that's uh, that didn't, didn't bear out unfortunately fortunately that one is uh, out the window um, okay I think that's it for us but uh, when we come back you'll hear Ben's interview with uh, Christopher Miller for BuzzFeed stick around for that like truly one of um, one of the people doing the best reporting totally. from the ground, one of the best Twitter followers, just like super impressive. So stick around for that. Okay, we are very pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Ukraine expert and correspondent for BuzzFeed News, uh, Christopher Miller, who is currently reporting from an area around Kiev. Uh, hey, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. So why don't we just start by asking, you know, what, what have you been up to the last, you know, 24, 48 hours? What have you seen? Uh, what's going on around you? Yeah, I mean, a lot has changed since the last time we spoke. Um, you know, it's been a really, really rough week, uh, you know, not only in um, Kiev, but, but uh, around Ukraine. There's been massive bombardments of, of, of missiles. There have been airstrikes, um, indiscriminate shelling of civilian areas. And, you know, every single day, sometimes, you know, multiple times a day, it's, you know, the news, news comes in um, about another civilian um, building hit, a school hit, uh, a hospital, an ambulance. Um, it's been, it's been really, really tough. Um, you know, the, uh, um, Russian forces are really, really bearing down on a lot of Ukraine's strategic locations. Um, military installations are getting hit really, really hard. Um, and and there also is really this, I think, terror campaign that is intensifying. Um, you know, Vladimir Putin has said that he's not attacking civilians, which is a blatant lie. What we've seen in the last week in, in Kiev and areas around are... Um, you know, entire entire towns, uh, villages on the edge of Kiev that are being fought fought over, destroyed. Uh, you know, more than a million people now have left the country, and many more are on their way west and trying to get to the EU to seek safety. And there are even even more people who aren't able to leave, who are stuck still, living in their basements. You know, I think the last time we spoke was just a few days or a couple of days into this this new Russian invasion, and things have really gotten much much worse since then. And a lot of people have been this entire time living underground, uh, you know, without yeah. basic amenities, uh, in many cases without heat, uh, without electricity, or or those things very limited. Uh, food we noticed in in Kiev and around Kiev. Um, is in really short supply. There's there's quite a bit of rationing happening, and 
you know, things like um, gasoline to get around is getting much, much harder to find. You know, we're having some some trouble with that ourselves, which you know has limited the extent to which we're able to do our reporting. So a lot of what we are trying to do as journalists is, um, you know, ration our supplies so we can be here longer, um, uh, really trying to, you know, um, uh, hone in on, you know, a certain place or, or, or a certain element of the story uh, in order to conserve um, things like gasoline and, and also not to spend too much time on the roads, uh, which are becoming more dangerous. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's become a lot, a lot more challenging to do the work here, um, but it's become a lot harder uh, to just simply survive for millions of Ukrainians. Um, you know, yeah. not only those in Kiev, which really does feel like a city under siege, um, but but across the country. Um, I would say, you know, a couple of major developments. Um, one that happened overnight that is uh, at the forefront of everyone's mind right now is this attack on the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, which is in southeastern yeah. Ukraine. And it's the biggest nuclear power plant in all of Europe. Ukraine has, I believe, 15 reactors that are currently operating around the country. And the Zaporozhye plant is, uh, like I said, um, not only Ukraine's biggest, but the biggest in Europe. And last night, a fire broke out. At least one fire broke out. Um, there was uh, close combat and shelling around the reactor. And, you know, we saw President Zelensky make uh, an urgent address um, to, uh, to Europe. Um, you know, for for any assistance um, and, and any support, anything they, they they might be able to do to press Russia in order to um, you know urgently stop what could potentially be um, a really major disaster. And certainly, you know, uh, yeah. Chernobyl is is something that you know every Ukrainian uh, remembers, uh, whether they lived through it or not, and. Any any sort of fighting outside of a power plant is is going to uh, worry a lot of people and and cause panic and and there certainly was a lot of that overnight and um, you know this morning we woke up and found out that the staff at the plant is still working but it's Russian forces who now control the area around the plant which is of course yeah. really really uh, of great concern and that you know just to give people a sense of it too doesn't that plant supply like a quarter of of energy in, in Ukraine. I imagine that one thing, if this becomes a kind of siege situation, one thing the Russians would want to do is be able to to shut off and control energy, which really is a weapon of terror against a civilian population, right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, Russia has used energy as a weapon. You know, there's really no facet of life uh, that Russia hasn't tried to weaponize or successfully weaponized against against Ukraine. Um, energy is certainly. Um, uh, something that it has weaponized, you know, we obviously, obviously a lot of, you know, the people who listen to this program will, will be, uh, you know, well-versed in, in Nord Stream 2, um, yeah. and, you know, Russia trying to bypass Ukraine, uh, um, you know, and, and the power, you know, nuclear power plants here do supply much of Ukraine's energy, obviously controlling that plant, um, you know, uh, puts, um, uh, you know, uh, power to large swaths of the country at risk. And um, it's just, you know, another lever that Russia can use to apply pressure um, on 
the Ukrainian government, which it wants to overthrow and um, uh, in order to impose its own puppet government here. So I, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of that. There's a really great concern that energy, uh, things like communications um, are, are going to be some of the next targets. Uh, one of the other things that happened this week was a strike on the Kiev TV tower, uh, which, which yeah. interrupted some mobile communications, but uh, city authorities were able to get everything pretty much back up and running fairly quickly. But I would I would expect that um, you know those types of attacks partnered with uh, cyber attacks are, are probably um, going to be happening with more with greater frequency and probably in conjunction with you know greater military strikes as well. So it, you've been in and around uh, Kiev this last few days. What is you, you talk about food shortages? You talk about obviously the the uncertainty of of when the next bomb is going to fall. We're talking about energy. How are people there who are staying kind of preparing for and thinking about what may be a, you know, a pretty incredibly difficult period of weeks here uh, under some form of siege or bombardment? I mean, uh, what's both the mood and and what types of preparations are people making? Yeah, the mood is, is, is pretty grim. Um, You know, people are, are trying to get out Um, there. There's been a rush to, uh, to try to flee by train. I was at the train station earlier this week um, with uh, my other reporter and photographer and, and the scenes that we saw were, were um, just really, really difficult, uh, difficult to see. Um, you know, it was a mad scramble for not, not the last seat, but really like the last square inches on a train uh, to try to get out west. And, you know, I think there are still some trains running and, I mean, you know, the people who are, are keeping these trains running are, are, you know, heroes for doing so under shelling and, um, you know, trying to evacuate a population uh, that's, you know, uh, upwards of three, three and a half million people. But people are, you know, if they can't get out um, or, or in some cases they don't want to get out, there are definitely a lot of people who see you know, Kiev or the place where they live as their home. They don't want to leave under any circumstances. You know, they also are taking this, you know, they're, they're sort of defiantly, um, you know, deciding to stay. Um, and, and that's kind of their own personal protest or middle finger to Russia. And yeah. they are hunkering down. They're, uh, you know, certainly gathering food, water, any other supplies. If they can find a gun, they're, 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 they're going to do so. Um, you know, we, uh, uh, <laughs> we, we tried to get some, uh, to buy some gas off a guy who, uh, rents cars earlier this week. And he said, the only thing that they're trading, um, gasoline for are guns. And obviously as journalists, yeah. we don't carry anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and he said, uh, you know, pretty much what everybody around town wants is a gun, um, you know, to defend their homes, to defend their homeland. And, you know, I would say, you know, one of the, the most um, uh, uh, surreal things is to see, I mean, everyone, like mothers, grandmothers, um, you know, dads, uh, kids, you know, 18, 17 year old boys, um, you know, with with firearms. Uh, it, you know, everywhere you go, uh, you see men coming out of uh, a grocery store or a gas station or, I mean, just literally anywhere, um, you know, walking with a shopping bag down the street and they're armed. And they're, they're, they're 
building an arsenal of weapons. Um, you know, they're building Molotov cocktails uh, by the thousands. Um, and, you know, they've um, sort of industrialized this, this um, uh, manufacturing of homemade and makeshift weapons to a really large extent. Um, yeah. And they're, they're erecting block posts. You know, there are checkpoints uh, on every road around here. Um, the entire, I mean, the entire region of Kiev, um, from my personal experience, has become a battleground, um, yeah. you know, or a staging ground for a defense. Uh, you know, I, I think from what I've gathered in speaking with people all over the country uh, and speaking with uh, some of my journalist colleagues who are based in other places, it's very much the same. Um, you know, it's, I would say, you know, having covered the conflict in eastern Ukraine since 2014, it's it's a bit like what it what it what it felt when the war broke out in 2014 2015 when things were so fluid that the front line was changing every day um you could wake up and be on the opposite side of the front line or under the control or in a city that was under the control of of somebody else a day prior um and um you know then and, and find out that uh, you know, you know, an hour later, that it's it's all been kind of flipped on its head. Um, it's it's a really uncertain moment, um, but I would say like the mood is one of defiance. There's plenty of concern. I think the Ukrainians feel as though they've hit Russia pretty pretty hard and squarely in the nose. Um, yeah. You know, they don't have them on the run. We know that Russia still very much has the upper hand. Uh, but, uh, you know, the way in which Ukrainians have come together and united is is something that I think is remarkable. And unlike even in 2014, 2015, when there were, you know, still, I, I would say, factions of society that were uneasy with the Euromaidan revolution, um, you know, we saw, I think, in Parliament today, even the, uh, you know, what, what people would, be, would consider the pro-Russian opposition bloc coming together with Zelensky's party, with uh, the party of uh, Petro Poroshenko, which is uh, seen as a much more um, nationalistic, uh, patriotic party. And, and yeah. you know, Russia's war and, and, and Putin's war in that way has really backfired Um you know, they thought that they would be greeted as liberators, at least in some areas. And that has not been the case at all. And and the opposite has occurred. You know, uh, Ukrainians are galvanized against Russia in a way, I think, that they never have been. I mean, so this, you know, raises the question of where is this leading? Because, you know, you walked us through well, you know, what where this could be leading in the east, uh, the last time you're on, which is essentially connecting uh the, the Donbass down through Mariupol uh, and into Crimea and then watching the assault on Odessa, maybe cutting Ukraine off from the, the water uh, from the sea. But in Kyiv, if the objective here clearly seemed to be to install a, a puppet government of sorts, a pro-Russian government, um, it, how is that even possible in the environment you're describing? I, I'm just trying to imagine what um, what the end game for the Russian operation in Kyiv is if if there's a population that just would not accept um, an, a Russian-imposed government, it feels like that's a recipe for just a, a long-term conflict there. 
Absolutely. You know, I mean, Ukrainians are gearing up for for partisan guerrilla warfare on the streets. Like, they're not going down without a fight. They're not going to accept any uh, any puppet government that Russia installs should they take over Kiev. Uh, you know, there really is nobody, including the former president, Viktor Yanukovych, um, who may or may not be, uh, according to reports, um, staging in Minsk, waiting for Kiev to fall so he could be, you know, reinstalled. Um, you know, th- there have been some other names from pro-Russian parties that have been floated uh, by by uh, British and U.S. intelligence um, who who may be among a, a group of political elites that Russia would try to install. And you know, these are not people who are seriously considered, let alone respected by the Ukrainian public. So there's no way that Ukrainians would accept this. I mean, the only way in which Russia is able to do that is really to shove it down Ukrainians' throats, to create this atmosphere of terror, um, in, in, in which case, you know, Ukrainians, um, in which the costs would be so great that perhaps Ukrainians wouldn't fight back or they yeah. or, or those who say they will stay no matter what end up deciding that you know what now is the time to leave um you know and and to get to that point it might be that i mean russia would have to carpet bomb kiev or i mean just yeah. Deci- yeah. decimate it in the way that the red army did uh when they you know pushed out um, Nazi Germany in um, World War II. And, you know, there, there's starting to be some talk of that around here, which is just absolutely surreal. Like it's, it's, it's yeah. so hard to fathom that, you know, that this is, this is where we are, that like people are considering something like this and, and worrying about something like this. When two weeks ago we were having cocktails and eating at, you know, some of the best restaurants in Europe. Um, and and yet, you know, that's that's today's reality. And, you know, one of the one of the rumors that's going around and um, I guess it's I mean, you know, maybe it's maybe it's more than rumor because it's it's been reported by by several media outlets as well, uh, citing sources uh, uh, from um, the U.S. and, and uh, European security officials that there are these kill lists that Russia has put uh, yeah, you know, yeah. has, has compiled um, targeting, you know, predominantly Ukrainian politicians, journalists, public figures of great influence. And, you know, whether or not they're doing this, just putting this out there is enough to really, you know, sow terror and fear and, and um, you know, uh, potentially panic. Um, and, you know, right now, I still see a lot of Ukrainians behaving very defiantly. You know, um, yeah. there's this attitude of bring it on. They're very confident in their military. They're very confident in their territorial defense forces um, and, and even in their volunteer civilian fighters. Um, and, uh, you know, right down to like the local taxi driver who's manning a checkpoint. You know, they believe they are putting up a really good fight. They're weakening Russia's forces. Um, but, you know, at the same time, they, they do realize that there is a lot in reserve. And they still, uh, you know, are, are going to are going to have to fight in the long term. They don't think that this is, you know, a fight that's going to be days. 
And I think if you look at, you know, the call that Vladimir Putin had with um, Emmanuel Macron of France this week, I think, you know, Macron walked away from that saying the worst is yet to come. And that's starting yeah. to sink in. That's starting to sink in here. So you wrote a story recently that caught my attention and, and people should, in addition to following you on Twitter, um, check out, you know, all your reporting on BuzzFeed. Um, it, this was about kind of U.S., special forces types, foreigners um, moving into to Ukraine. Um, and it, it really got my attention because it made me think, um, well, first of all, it's interesting. It's like a Spanish Civil War kind of situation. Um, but that there's a lot of U.S. special forces who, um, you know, uh, I, I could see I could see the number going up significantly um, from not just the U.S., but but the U.K. and other countries. Um, and And which raises the question of, you know, direct contact, right, between Russian forces and American trained special forces. That, 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 I feel like this hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Um, and also, these are special forces that fought against insurgencies um, in Iraq and Afghanistan um, for many years. So they know something about insurgency. And the idea of them being on the other side of that is, is fascinating to consider. I mean, to tell us a little bit about your reporting and also. How do you see that that trend potentially developing? Yeah, well, I mean, since I wrote that story, which was um, about 10 men that had gathered in Poland and were planning on crossing the border, and it, I believe it was three from the UK, one from Germany, and uh, six from the US, uh, I've gotten hundreds of emails huh. from uh, predominantly men, but not only men, saying that they you know, are trying to join this new international legion in Ukraine that uh, President Zelensky announced himself. And you know, there are reports in foreign media of dozens of other European uh, veterans that are interested in coming over to Kiev or have already entered Ukraine. I think uh, there was a, a, if I can remember correctly, um, one of the Scandinavian countries... I believe it was Sweden said uh, there was a report that said something like 30 former, um, uh, you know, soldiers um, uh, were planning on coming to Ukraine um, to join the Legion. And then I believe Zelensky himself said something to the effect of uh, maybe upwards of 16,000 people have expressed interest in joining the foreign uh, this 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 Ukrainian foreign legion, um, you know, there's a group called the uh, Georgian National Legion here that has typically been an entry point for foreigners who have wanted to join the Ukrainian military, and uh, you, uh, foreigners have been allowed to join the Ukrainian military for several years now. But there have been so many obstacles in place that there haven't been very many. It's a very bureaucratic process to do so. But now Zelensky has essentially opened the floodgates and said explicitly. If you want to fight for freedom, if you want to fight for European democracy, if you want to fight for Ukraine uh, against evil, come to come to us. We'll give you arms. We'll give you a contract. We'll make it a legitimate thing. And you know, from what I can tell, anecdotally, uh, you know, people are um, you know racing over to try to join um, this legion. Uh, you know, the uh, the team that I was in contact with when I published that story, has now grown to more than 30 people. Um, not all of them are yet in Ukraine, but more than a dozen of them have made it across the border. Um, the rest of them are looking uh, for ways in. They're looking um, for the supplies they think they need to be here for a long haul. 
Um, there are a couple of recruiters on this side of the border who are helping facilitate um, contracts for them or help them with the process of joining. Um, obviously, there are some logistical issues, language barriers that you know they'll need to get through. Uh, but you know this really could end up being um, you know quite a uh, quite a story and certainly yeah. something that I think is is worth watching closely because as you mentioned all of these people well, not all of but you know many of them are uh, NATO trained Western soldiers um, who you know may be retired but we know how Russia is going to see them you know Russia is exactly. not going yeah. to care whether or not they're retired they're going to see them yeah. as American special forces or British special forces. And they're going to say, you know, this is a sign that it is the West that wants to destroy Russia, um, that, yeah. you know, they're sending these people in. Like, we already know what the narrative is going to be. Um, it's just a matter of time before, you know, Russian propaganda um, starts really pushing that out. Um, but I think the CIA, you know, they'll say the CIA is behind it or something too, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think we've already seen some, you know, of those uh, state media reports of, you know, CIA being, uh, you know, on the front line in Donbass and uh, controlling the government in Kiev, um, you know, things that, of course, are, are, are not true. Um, but, you know, this is something I think um, is definitely worth watching. There has not, to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't seen any statements from the U.S. on no. Zelensky's call no. for American fighters to come over. I think only Liz Truss, the foreign secretary in the U.K., has said, uh, you know, she welcomes um, the idea of British citizens who want to defend democracy and, and help defend Ukraine going over there, which um, to me was surprising. There, there have been no other, um, you know, senior diplomats in the Western world who have come out and, and said something similar. But also her comments followed a story um, written by a, a Guardian colleague of mine that said, um, that uh, UK authorities were stopping people at the airport who were looking to come over to Ukraine because they were concerned of uh, uh, people of far-right persuasions and connected to far-right groups coming over yeah. to uh, link up with some of the um, more marginalized far-right volunteer um, uh, paramilitary forces here in Ukraine. Yeah. Anyway, it's you know, definitely well, something yeah. to watch. Something to watch there. Um, one last question before we let you go is just what is it like to be a journalist? Like what, um, uh, how, how are you able to report? Um, you gave us a little call earlier about, you know, the difficulty of having things like gas, but you're, you're obviously moving around. Are, and are you seeing other uh, foreign journalists there? I mean, how has that changed for you over the course of the last few days? And, and what are your, your plans going forward? Yeah, there are a lot of foreign journalists in the country right now. I think um, the Ukrainian government said something like 1,300 foreign correspondents wow. okay. uh, have been accredited. And, you know, you could also assume that there are probably several here who aren't accredited that the government doesn't really know about. Um, because you can move around relatively uh, freely um, with just a foreign passport a lot of times. It, it just does help to have, you know, these um, accreditation cards that we get. Um, so that you're not interrogated at every checkpoint. But, you know, what, what it's like to report here, I mean, you, you can see on my camera that it's dark. The light in my room is, yeah. not, is not very good. And that's because uh, there have been airstrikes across the country, particularly in the area of uh, Kiev region that I'm currently in. 
And we have been told to keep our lights low, to um, close all of the curtains, um, and, you know, so that um, the towns and cities around this area aren't illuminated from the sky and essentially, you know, not to make ourselves targets for uh, bombing mm. runs. Yeah. Um, you know, on the roads, it's, it's getting harder, uh, it's getting harder and harder to move around and it takes longer and longer every day to get to and from the places we need to be. There are checkpoints set up on every road. Um, you know, the roads are littered with tank traps. Uh, for the first time, uh, in the past week today, we saw landmines set up on the side of one of the roads near a checkpoint. Uh, which is pretty jarring, and nobody had warned us that they were there. And, you know, we came very close to the edge of this mm. road before um, uh, the reporter sitting next to me pointed them out. Um, you know, it's, it's things are developing in a very, you know, challenging, sometimes scary way. And, yeah. you know, that's going to be a challenge for us in getting this story out. I will say the Ukrainian government has, you know, has really lifted a lot of the barriers for us and made things a lot easier in terms of, um, you know, moving around to the extent that they can. But people here are really on edge. Um, you know, we have not run into any Russian soldiers, but the Ukrainians, not, not Ukrainian soldiers, um, but regular Ukrainians who have been given arms and are you know, controlling checkpoints um, outside of their towns and, you know, defending their, defending their homes. They're really nervous. They're not trained. You know, I mean, nobody ever thought that they would have to do this. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And so you can forgive them for being a little bit jumpy. Um, but, you know, they, they are certainly scrutinizing every person that passes them, including foreigners, um, and, and it's, it's, um, you know, I, I don't suspect that it's going to get easier as yeah. this conflict intensifies. Yeah. Well, look, we, uh, we really appreciate the, all this, uh, information, this update, and, uh, we hope you stay, uh, safe, uh, in the days ahead and, uh, uh people should, you know, follow you on Twitter and, and check out your stuff on Buzzfeed, but, but thanks so much. Hope you have a, a as good a night as you can over there. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks again to Christopher Miller for doing the show. Uh, thank you to Olina Dunira uh, for for calling us in from Odessa, Ukraine uh, at a time that must be terrifying. I'm not sure that I would, I don't know. Maybe I would want to do interviews. I don't know. It's just horrifying. I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's, well, I think you just maybe you want to communicate uh, what's happening. There. Yeah. I mean, the Ukrainians have clearly wanted the world to pay attention, right? Because it, it's That's true. their hope for support. Yeah, well, so we should listen to her and then um, delete Lindsey Graham's Twitter yeah, account yeah. because that yeah, guy's an asshole. Yeah. Um, okay, well, we will. Um, thanks for listening to this special episode, and we'll talk to you guys on Wednesday. See ya. Pod Save the World is a crooked media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. Hold up. 